What is up, everyone? I hope you're having a wonderful 2023. Inside the War Room is, of course, here, ready to go. A lot of shows this year to put out. Two things you can do to support us. One, give a five-star rating wherever you listen to this podcast. A like, a thumbs up, subscribe, whatever that looks like on your platform. We would greatly appreciate it. Two, if you want to support the show, you can do that by going to warroommedia.com. That keeps the ads off. That keeps us rolling. It covers our cost. We would really, really appreciate that. Warroommedia.com. Stuart, welcome to the War Room. Well, I'm very happy to be here. Okay, your most recent book, The Uses of Delusion, Why It's Not Always Rational to Be Rational. Okay, well, let's... Words are important, meaning's important, so delusional, rational, kind of set the pair, the, the frame for what we mean when we use those terms. Well, uh, and, and there are, like everything else, they're up for debate in many circumstances. Right. But, but, um, but, you know, my, my specialty area has been what I would call rational behavior, and that is behavior that I, I'm, I'm sorry, ra- irrational behavior. I mean, they're related, but but uh, irrational behavior is behavior that uh, he, that humans do despite it not making sense or being uh, inconsistent with what we know about logic in the real world. Uh, and normally, I am opposed to it. I'm I'm out there saying, you know, there are psychological reasons why, for example, people believe in superstition. Uh, but, uh, but it's not rational. And, and the hope, my hope has always been that I could cure people by showing them why they do it and, and explaining that it doesn't make sense in terms of science. But as I have worked on that topic for a long time, I kept coming across examples of irrational behavior, behavior that, that wasn't logical and wasn't consistent with with what we know about the world, but still benefited people. And mm-hmm. so this book is really sort of like a, a turn a little bit for me. It's not really a turn, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. but it is it is different in the sense that I'm talking about uh, things that people do that are not rational. And so and so a lot of it has to do with false beliefs that mm-hmm. fall and, and this is the this is where the word delusion comes in. And I can probably explain it most clearly by using an example, the one that I come that I use at the very beginning of the book, which is that uh, in a, uh, a case of a woman that I knew uh, back in my college days, whose husband died suddenly, and uh, and she uh, worked in a library uh, up on the seventh floor of a library near a window, and and it had been their habit that he would walk to the library to pick her up at the end of the day, and they would walk home together. Um, and it was a very sweet thing. And for months afterwards, she continued to look down out the window looking for her husband to come. And she, she, it wasn't just, you know, a hope. It was, she actually believed that he was going to come back. And she said to me, she said to me once, um, and this is, quite a while after he had died, she said, I just think he's going to walk through a door one day, you know, and it was a very sweet thing. And, and clearly a delusion, in, or, mm-hmm. you know, not, not based in reality. And she understood that in some on some level. But, uh, but it also was not the kind of thing where you would say, Oh, snap out of it, you know, no one would, no therapist would say, 
you have to get rid of this this idea stop looking out the window and so so i've discovered several things sort of like that in my research over the years where people do things that are obviously not entirely rational uh and yet they benefit um and so i kind of wanted to even the score with this book and to 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 after after spending a lot of time you know uh in a way being critical of irrational behavior i wanted to recognize and acknowledge that there are things that we do that are not entirely sensible and yet they they help us okay um so when you when you talked about that I, i'm reminded of a booklet i guess it is a little short ebook by seth godin called placebo and he argues um he's a marketing guy not a not a scientist but he argues in the book that there's there's at least some benefit in people um, using placebo. I think he compared like um, he had a bunch of comparisons, but maybe one was um, acupuncture versus Western medicine. And basically uh, you can kind of get the same effect if people believe that it works. So would that be kind of part of what you're saying here is the the belief that something might be true, um, although not rational, could be a benefit. That's right. That's exactly right. And and uh, the placebo effect is a is a good example of that, where you have an expectation of of a positive effect, and and then you've done something. You've taken a pill or you've done whatever, and so you know you 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 experience the effect even if it wasn't the pill that did it. So uh, yes, there's very much and 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 you know I, I do cover. Uh, uh, both, uh, you know, religion and and um, superstition in the book, and they are also cases where often the mere act of participating in a superstition or or whatever else uh, can have a, a a positive effect. And and in some cases, the person, as I say, knows that it's not entirely rational or scientific, and yet they still want to do it, and they still get the benefit. Okay. And so you, you touched on logic there for a second. And so my understanding is there's three different ways to kind of persuade people. Um, uh, and so what you're arguing is a logical fallacy um, or using a train. My son's taking logic right now. He's, he, he could unpack this. I'm not taking logic, but he, but you know, they have all these little things like this plus this and this, and you know, these little formulas. So what you're saying is that People you, in your career, at least, you've argued that hey, we should think logically um, to make decisions, um, right. and we don't. And then there's some benefits. My question then is, um, how? Because we are stuck in time and place. How do we know that the logic that we're using is sound logic? Yeah. Well, I mean, it takes it takes some training in some circumstances to know that. Other times, I think it's pretty obvious. I think that you you don't have to to uh, to be, you know, to, to, to be that um, schooled like your son uh, in order to know uh, that something's illogical. And the, as in the example that I gave you about my friend mm -hmm. whose husband died. Right. But, um, but, uh, but there are cases where it, you know, I guess I think it's, it's, it's less the case of knowing your logical fallacies, although it does fall into this, but people are persuaded by rhetoric, you know, and right. by, and they, and they make, they are 
persuaded to make a connection that's not really there simply by association, right? And in the in the regular world, we we encounter that a lot in the political world and in other areas where people are just trying to persuade you. They're not really using logic. I mean, you the the ancient Greeks, you know, there was this group of people called the sophists, right? Sophistry. Mm-hmm. And and their whole goal was just to persuade you, and they didn't care whether it was really logical in an Aristotelian sense. And so, so uh, you can gain a lot in court or in other places simply by persuading. And so, so I mean, educating people in that I think is goes a long way to making them more logical in their thinking and, you know, realizing that this is an emotional appeal that Mm -hmm. is being sent for, doesn't prove anything. The mere association of two things doesn't mean that there's a causal relationship Mm -hmm. or anything and so forth. So I, I, I'm actually very supportive of things like what your son is studying and, and simpler forms of teaching uh, rational thinking, critical thinking, um, and so forth in, in lower grades, that would be great. Oh, okay. So one of the, you talk about political stuff. And so one of the frustrations if I turn on Fox or MSNBC is they will commit the either or fallacy 700 times that night, either, uh, Trump is the greatest or he's Hitler. He'd flip the other channel. They'll reverse it. So you know, Biden's the greatest or he's got dementia, right? So whoever station you are, they commit the either or fallacy, uh, continually. And sometimes when you're dealing with children, Perhaps it is easier just to commit an either-or fallacy for the sake of not having to unpack it. But with yeah. issues that are important, the either-or fallacy, um, it, to me, it is quite dangerous and perhaps falls into this um, irrational behavior that we see because we start to think in kind of everything is either this or it's that. Um, mm-hmm. So have you seen, before we get to the the benefits maybe you're working – not rational. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen maybe the either or fallacy has a disproportionate impact on some of this behavior that you're talking about? Absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the and this is a this is a hard thing, right, for people to learn. But one of the basic principles of science is to withhold judgment, right? Mm-hmm. And and you you withhold judgment, and then you then before you decide what might be the case. You try to imagine as many possible hypotheses for what you've seen before you jump to the one that, you know, that you want. And so so for any situation, there are often many that more than one explanation for why it happened. And it's really important to to evaluate all of them before you make a judgment. And that's hard because because we like certainty. We like we like certainty and we like things that fit our preconceived notions. And so it's very easy to signal that you are on one side or the other by just going to that standard explanation, you know, and and uh, but that's not that's that's rhetoric. And that's 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 a that's a political fight. That is not how to learn, you know, what's true and what's not true. Yeah. And I'll pull the curtain back here for half a second. For me, it's one of those things as a podcast host, I like to get on. Uh, right-wing, left-wing, differing perspectives to talk to a lot of different people. And I'm always concerned that when I send out guest invites, they're going to send back, oh, well, you must be a this, that, or the <laughs> other because I've had on kind of a, a wide swath of opinions. But um, right. it, because once you become aware of the either-or fallacy and you just see how often it is, 
used against people. You're like, oh my gosh, like this thing is everywhere. Like it is, right. there might be a proper name for it. I've always heard it called the either or fallacy, but it's it's so pervasive in our culture today that it, it really draws these hardened lines that makes right. it very hard to to work through. Um, however, there probably are times where people are acting um, out of that fallacy and they do what's good or, or proper or good for them at least. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that there, there are, I mean, the kinds of uh, delusions that I talk about in this book are not exactly like that. I, I don't think there's a lot of benefit. You know, there, I do talk elsewhere and other, and other work that I've done uh, on irrational behavior about, for example, the confirmation bias, right? That the idea is that you have a position and, you know, we're very clever people and given any random fact we can figure out how to make it fit into our own scheme of thinking, right? And, and and somebody with a different scheme could probably be very clever and 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 just as easily fit it into theirs. And so so there's this concept, this idea that the, the goal isn't really to understand the facts. The goal is to fit all the facts into your system so that you feel good about yourself. And you are, you know, you 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 hold your position, and so uh, so. But the, the kinds of delusions I'm talking about in this book are things like overconfidence. You know, that that there's a there are several overconfidence is not uh, every always good every time, uh, but there are a number of circumstances in which having an inflated view of yourself, not rational, not not grounded in the facts. But an inflated view of yourself brings benefits, and so, so uh, I talked about that uh, a fair amount in the book. There are also circumstances in which overconfidence uh, is not beneficial, and might and and actually pessimism might mm. be more more important. I talk about things like, for example, you know, if you're if you're about to start do something that is really important and irreversible. Um, you, probably overconfidence is not a good idea at that moment. <laughs> you know that you know. You know, for example, uh, you if you're the one of the few people on the planet who has the 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 responsibility of deciding whether or not to go to war. You know, that's a moment when overconfidence could be a real mistake. And uh, and and there are many you know smaller life decisions that are similarly. Um, difficult. You, you know, the, I also give the example of starting a new business, right? You know, the, the something like fifty percent of of all new businesses fail within five years. Mm -hmm. That's the latest statistic. So, 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 th what's interesting about this, and I do talk about sort of work situations in the book, but, but uh, if you're overconfident. Uh, at the beginning, as you launch a business, that's probably bad because you will not think about all the ways in which you could fail and, and things you should consider. Once you've launched the business and you're out there, that's when overconfidence could be helpful because it will motivate you to work hard. It will keep you going. It will be contagious with your employees. They'll also feel positive and work hard and so forth. You know, the, there's a difference between the sort of the decision point overconfidence and the day-to-day, -day, let's get out of bed and get to work. Right. So It's funny because I had wrote down starting a business when you started talking about overconfidence <laughs> because uh, as someone who owns a business and operates businesses and, and you know, does yeah. uh, stuff like that, it's, it's, um, it's, it's part of the process. And, and, I, and I see a lot of rhetoric online about 
everyone should start a business. And on some level, I'm sure they're they're overhyping the everyone. Um, it is the easiest time in human history, though, to go start a business. But to your point, it's still easy to fail. It's very hard to succeed. So yeah. how do you go about measuring if you're overconfident or not? Because yeah. you have you have what you think, and then you have the people around you. But the people around you might be overly pessimistic, or they might be overly confident too. So how do you measure that? Yeah, that that's a that's always a a um, a tricky thing scientifically, and and I'm of course I'm working with laboratory studies with people and so forth. But but they do they do measure. Um, uh, they do have scales that measure it, and and often what they will do is ask yourself, ask you for questions about your own, uh, your own level of ability and so forth, and then they will ask people around you who know you as well, uh, or measure it against an objective standard. There sometimes there are questionnaires that have sort of, so, sort of, you know, one one of the questionnaires they have is about a knowledge-based one. Like, you know, how would you rate your knowledge of X, Y, and Z, right? And and peppered within the questionnaire, they have topics that don't actually even exist, right? And so some people say, oh, I'm very knowledgeable about X, right. whatever, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and it's not even a thing. So so that's how they catch people and. Um, and so, uh, you know, that, that it, but it is, a, it, as you suggest, it is a, a, uh, sort of a scientific problem. And the, and the thing is, is that in, in the real world, you know, there's many circumstances in when it, which it's not over until it's over. You know, I, I talk about sports, uh, in the book too, as, as being an example or where, you know, in a, in a timed event, like a basketball game there comes a point where it's just, you know, it's not physically possible to catch up. Right. Right. But, but in any untimed sport like baseball or tennis, you know, until the last point is one or, you know, there, there are, there is no, you know, it's still a possibility and that's where being overconfident and not quitting, you know, uh, can have great benefit to it. So, so, so as you say, sometimes, sometimes it's hard. I think in the real world is you, you can only judge in hindsight, whether the person was overconfident in that case sometimes. Yeah. I, I there was a period where I was managing uh, boxers and uh, MMA fighters. And um, obviously that's also, it's timed, but you could end the event with one strike. Right. That's and so right. you do have the clock element, but there, it, it, it becomes very tricky because a fighter can take a certain amount of abuse during the fight. And you're like, oh man, we should stop the fight maybe because of the abuse they've taken. Now I'm not in the corner house as a manager, but but watching it, you're like, oh, should we stop the fight or not? Um, but then you also know with one punch or move, right. this, this sequence of events could come to an end and your guy could walk out victorious. Right. And we have this nature, it seems, to replay all of the times that that one moment happens, which is like five a year, <laughs> and the other ten thousand that it never happens. <laughs> exactly, we don't talk about. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. No, that's that is the that is, again when you're when you when you're driven by in that situation. I think you you obviously are driven by hope that that, that mm-hmm. your man could still win, um, but uh, that becomes sort of a confirma- confirmation bias situation mm-hmm. where you do suddenly remember all those cases. It can happen, but it's sort of like you know, you play the lottery, right? Right. They, they, uh, they don't interview all the losers, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so when, 
And so when you when you win the lottery uh, or when you play the lottery, what comes to mind is that somebody has to win mm-hmm. and and that, uh, you know, you, those images of riches and so forth. And uh, the reality is, is that you buy the ticket and it doesn't enhance your chances of winning very much. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. your money is gone for sure. That's your money's what, gone for sure. <laughs> right. But, but your winning is not that much more than zero. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because, you, you know, you, uh, I would love to, I don't know if you have these studies that you can send me, I could put in the show notes. I'd love to read kind of how they, how they measure that because as you talk through it, you know, the thing that I've noticed that makes successful people successful is the ability to do the task over and over and over again. Now that might not be on these charts, I don't know, but, but I, I'm curious because as you talk about, um, you know, our, our tendency to overflow our ego. Yeah, I know about that, which is a made up subject or whatever, but it does seem that I would be curious, uh, is there a measurement of people's ability to um, do the menial task, do the task over and over and over again? Because the greats, it seems when you study them, they have a really unique ability to perform at a high level and consistently do the things that matter. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the features, one of the questions is, is the degree to which you're getting feedback about your performance. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're, if you're getting immediate feedback and you're always doing quite well, then there's no mystery as to mm-hmm. why you, why you're, you're doing it. But, but there has been in terms of the field, in terms of the question of overconfidence, there's a really clever little experiment that I tripped across that that I put in the book, and and it was a guy who these people had developed a a, a really simple task. You, you they were on a computer, and there's a line, you know, a horizontal line, and the goal was that you would take a your cursor and you would try to put a little pointer at where you think the exact middle of the line is, right? And there were like eleven of these lines on each screen, and you were just doing lots and lots of screens. And so they asked people, how, what, what do you think is your ability to do this? How, how many do you think you'll get right, you know, and so forth. And they set them loose at the task. And uh, it turned out that, that uh, most people greatly overestimated their ability at the task. They were most, almost 80% of them were overconfident about their ability. But the interesting thing, getting to your point of m- motivation, was that they informed half of the half of the people about how well they had done. So, in other words, about half of the people had their bubbles burst. Mm. You know, you thought you were really great. Here's your real performance. Mm-hmm. Right? The others were not infer- informed, but all of the participants at the end of the experiment were given the opportunity to continue on and make. They were making a little bit of money doing the task. You can you can continue if you like, right? Well, it, it turned out that, uh, as you might expect, the people who's, who who were deflated by their real scores continued much less, uh, quit sooner, and also their performance actually went down after mm-hmm. after being informed. Their performance went down, whereas the people who weren't informed continued on longer and continued at about the same performance level. So. So a lot of it depends on, you know, your the degree of feedback. And, you know, in real world, just just to bring it back to businesses, um, often if you're starting a business, you don't get the feedback. My, I mean, I haven't started the business before, but you don't get the ultimate feedback right away. You get some feedback, but you don't know for sure mm-hmm. that you're going to fail or succeed for a while. Right. Mm-hmm. 
And during that period, you have to keep going. And so, so it's, it's an interesting thing. Uh, this is a case where, as I say, on the day-to-day overconfidence is, it can be helpful. Yeah. And, and we see that we do, um, um, B2B lead gen. And so we're helping other businesses grow their business. And what we find interesting is, um, a lot of companies, um, you know, when they start off your friends, family, networking, you know, everyone, you know, kind of a warm lead mentality, which is not a good indicator for how good your offer is for the marketplace or how right. to phrase it or how to pitch it or what people. And so it, there's this kind of curve of which, uh, you know, you kind of got the friends and family discount, if you will. But now when you go to Bob, who doesn't know you and doesn't care, right. um, you know, his perception of you is completely different. And so, right. uh, yeah, that, that does resonate quite <laughs> for, for some of my, for some of my, uh, my clients, I, I can see how that's, they, they may, they may just pick up your book as if it would be helpful <laughs> for them. Um, but okay. So overconfidence, what are some other, other things that you talk about in the book that, um, that you enjoyed covering at least? Well, uh, a couple of things. I mean, the, the the big ones are at the end of the book, the the most controversial ones, and the and to me the some the more interesting ones. One is this idea: we have this uh, this tendency to believe that that our personalities are sort of a fixed thing. That I have a personality, and that I and that that predicts you know that that you can count on me to be a certain way, even over a long period of time. And uh, and the, in in reality, there there's a lot of evidence against that. Uh, and I and I don't. I mean, this is just one random, not random uh, example. One one uh, you know exam dramatic example. But I I open this chapter with a discussion of uh, Patricia Hearst, who who uh, back in the 70s was the heir to the Hearst fortune, and the Hearst newspaper fortune, and she was kidnapped by you know she was like just a teenage kid in college she was kidnapped by these radicals uh and and held by them for a period of time and then after about three months of of confinement and and you know some uh what some people would call brainwashing um she joined the group and she became a member and she you know it was involved in a bank robbery armed bank robbery she developed bombs you know she be, she came a, a tremendous change in her personality and then after she was arrested she switched back and she became the prim and proper rich girl and she was able to to do very well in court uh, unlike most people because she, we don't have fortunes uh sure. you know and and persuasive uh you know parents but but it was an example of, uh, you know, they, of course, did try to raise a brainwashing defense for her because she was tried for the bank robbery and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and it didn't work with the with the with the jury. Um, but but I argue in the book that that we are much more affected by the environment than we acknowledge and and that uh, under you know, the rights, the right or the wrong circumstances, we are all capable of behavior that would surprise ourselves. And, uh, and uh, so, and at the same time, that delusion that I'm Stuart, and I'm going to be Stuart from Mm. now on, and I'm predictably one way or Ryan is, we count on that, we, no one would, no one would get married, right, without some kind of belief that this person I'm, I'm marrying today is going to be that same person later on. And so 
So, um, so there's a long discussion of that in the book and the, the fact that, that it, we're really taking more of a chance than we recognize uh, when we make these, even in a business relationship or a friendship, you know, uh, that this person is going to, to, to be consistently the way they are when we meet them. Uh, and, and most of the time people aren't kidnapped by radical. People. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's not that, that worry, but but um, but that's that's one of the ones in the book at the end that is uh, more controversial and and more fun as far as I'm concerned. So does that tie into back to the the overconfidence, which is, you know, me and you have a conversation, we meet, I'm like, hey, Stuart's a great guy, and therefore I'm overconfident that I can read you of who you are. Is that this right. is there kind of a connection there? It's very very much so, yeah. And I also talk about. I talk about love. One of the one of the chapters in the book is about love and marriage. And since I brought it up and, you know, this whole business that, uh, you know, here here's a delusion for you. Uh, uh, many people still say in their in their marriage ceremonies that I promise to love you uh, till death do us part. Right. Mm-hmm. Yet. Yet we all also know the and the people who say that know uh in in most cases that that again about 50% of marriages will fail so so you know you have to be a little bit delusional to make that promise uh and yet and yet no one would i i, I try to pro- plot out what would be a rational um uh you know marriage vow and no one would ever want to say it right <laughs> the, the rational vow is like I really love you right now, and I hope this feeling lasts forever. Uh, and I'll do my best to make that happen. <laughs> right? I promise to do my best. That like no one, no one either in the audience or receiving that vow is going to feel very good. And so, so it's a it's an interesting little. There are many delusions associated mm-hmm. with love. You know, the, this idea that that uh, this is my one and only. And that some we have something special that no one else has. Sure. Uh, yeah, the soulmate but, thing. Yeah. but at the same time, you know, the alternative is 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 probably worse. Okay, so yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, uh, we we can pick on me for a second here. I've been married sixteen years, got a wife and four kids. Good for you. <laughs> um, I know she would say I'm not the same person, and she's definitely not the same person. Um, so we can say that quite safely. Right. I, I still love you, dear. And <laughs> I promise to do my best. <laughs> now, that being said, part of the thing, at least for Ryan and Haley, um, is that there is a vow that we have committed to that 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 kind of supersedes these personality changes, the good times, the bad times. Um, and so we, we so I, I hear what you're saying, which is the vow kind of says you're going to stay with them, and that's kind of hard to do. Um, but is is isn't the wouldn't the argument go if you've made the vow then you're presuming that there are things that are going to change which is why you have a vow to begin with like hey this is not this is not going to have Starbucks and so um, is it that okay the personalities change yes but is it that people aren't committed maybe to the vow that they've well, said that, I mean that that there that's an argument that is made that okay. that people that people are capable of choosing to hold to the vow and that, and that they can, and that they, once they've made that commitment, it, it will, it will stick. Right. Um, but at the same time, 
many people also believe an idea which I will argue is somewhat contradictory, which is that that people fall in love, that they don't have any choice about who they love, right? That yeah, they yeah, just yeah. that they just you know it just happens, and right. I, I you know, and so if that's the case, then that's and you're married, mm-hmm. right? Then that that's a threat to the stability of the marriage because someone might come along, uh, and you wouldn't have any choice, you right, know, right. etc. So, so I mean, this is where I think there just are some some really fascinating irrational notions that come into to to love and marriage and the promises that we make and so forth uh, that that are that are still I would argue. Unbe- you know very clearly positive you know yeah. it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense entirely if you're going to you're going to be totally honest and rational when you make the marriage vow you you would make it in that boring way that i just tried to do it uh but but that's perhaps not as important as the effect of the of the vow for the two of you yeah no i mean i'll, I'll i'm a poke on this a little bit more because this is I, I like this this is good so yeah i'm with you there's no soulmates i don't think that either um i don't know how many uh women on the earth i would be quote compatible with so there's people with just different personality types that it, it's just not gonna work for them or for me so whatever that whatever that proportion is um of the earth's population of, of females i don't know but x we'll call it um in in x i think that there's probably some inside that subset that I would have a higher chance of a long-term marriage succeeding and some with a lower chance for uh, different reasons. Um, and so that's how I would think about it. Not that my wife Haley is the only person that can make this work with long period of time, which means then practically that by making the vow with her, I, we have chosen each other. Not, not that we've had some kind of magical potion or soulmate that, that, that no, that we, there's an acknowledgement that yes, theoretically this could work out, but oh, by the way, the same problems that we were going to have, or we're going to have with that other person too. So, you, so by switching partners, by uh, husband and wife, we're, we're not going to then solving anything. We're just having a different set of problems that look slightly different with this person. And so, kind of, to me, it kind of goes back to the vow thing, which is if you're committed to the vow, um, then you're like, well, yeah, we we could break the vow. That's possible, but then we're just reengaging this process with someone else, and there's going to be a similar set of problems that we don't. That we don't do to me that seems quite logical. Maybe maybe That's I'm delusional. Very, though. Help I, me think out. It's, I think it's no, I think it's very logical. Okay. I think it's very rational. And as a result, I don't think many people think that way. Uh, you know, you 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 do, uh, and that's great. And I and I have on occasion as well. I mean, I give the I give the example in the book of uh at the very beginning of this chapter of being in a conversation with a woman that at the time I was very much in love with. And and I and I'm talking about some other thing entirely. And I happen to just say parenthetically, of course, given the many people in the world, we could have each met any number of other people who would be just as be just as happy. Whatever I was going towards in that conversation immediately ceased because she reacted very strongly and said, no, don't say that. She really needed it to be the case that we were one and onlys. And right. uh, and she was very logical in any, any other way, any other aspect of her life. It was not a, a thing. And and as it turned out, we didn't end up together long term. So maybe maybe it's my fault uh, for not thinking <laughs> in that way. But um 
but anyway, that that's that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. And I yeah. and at, over the years, I've come to recognize that there may really be a great value. One of the one of the things that you know you talk about the trade off between your you know your current marriage and then if if it didn't work, I'd have to go into the into the field, right? Mm-hmm that one of the one of the benefits of believing that you and your your partner are soulmates right are a special connection it automatically devalues anyone else right mm-hmm. if you if you have this idea that this is a unique bond then you're already saying in a way to yourself i'm probably not going to find something similar mm-hmm. outside and and so that, you know, to me, that it may not be rational. You know, it's not logical necessarily, yeah. but it could be very valuable. Yeah, yeah. So on that, that's interesting because I would say, you know, sixteen years in to find what me and my wife have would would be hard now because I would need another sixteen years. I'm going to be thirty eight this year. Probably not going to have four more kids. So like, there's certain things that we've gone through that would be right. hard to recreate. Um, I still wouldn't use the moniker soulmates, but I would just say that no. we do have a much more special bond. Right, sixteen years ago we got married. Um, and so as you go along, if you have a good and, and joyful marriage, that there is a sense in which okay, this is really special and it's really hard to duplicate this. Um, and so early yeah. on, if you have the soulmate thing, and it kind of goes bad or it's tough the first year, like a lot of marriages are. <laughs> You right. might go, hey, this isn't my soulmate. Let me go find them. And it's like, and so, and so for me, that framework of swapping wives, it doesn't yeah. fix that because right. you're going to find that as well. I mean, once you've got a lot of time in and things are going well, that that momentum and that that history factors into your thinking, right? I'm mm-hmm. Not only do I lose this person, but I lose this long history and this long success story that we've had, so... Congratulations, Ryan. I'm very happy for oh, you. Well, well thank you. Uh, thank you. We we're, we're love my wife. So she's not, she's out with the kids right now. But um, so, how does this? So, you talk about friendships, but what about because personality, um, four kids, my oldest is my son, who's 15, who's uh, studying logic. And then my youngest is with my wife right now. She's uh, three, will be four. And I've got two in between there. So, I've got a 12 year old and a seven year old. So, I kind of got a spread there. Yeah. Her personalities are all different. And they right. all change as they grow. So you can see the progression yeah. of that. Also, you mentioned that the dependency. Um, as parents, kind of what we have to do is go, okay, well, we know, you know, um, my youngest is um, a little bit of a bossy pants. So it's more likely that if this is said that she's going to kind of have this pattern until perhaps she changes and she might change. They all have changed at some level. So with right. kids, it's quite obvious that people do change. Um yeah. Why do we carry that belief around that adults can't or won't change? You think? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that I, th- I mean, there is a in in psychology, there's a a sense that uh, that once you are of a certain age, your personality is pretty fixed. Uh, there, they, they, you know, they, there's a trait. Psychology is the sort of the dominant view of personality now that you have these five, you know, primary traits. And and you could test us. You could test your people on them now, twenty years from now, and their scores would be similar, right? Um, but uh, uh, but you know there is change that happens when you're young, and you as your capabilities in, 
prove and and other things happen to you. I think there is a a great environmental influence there too. And and uh, it, but later in life, you're you know you've you, your habits are set uh, more set, and and your personality becomes more formed. But uh, but we do. It, it, I think the the business that is most striking to me. I only have two kids grown now. But I think I've always uh, recognized that you you should always have at least two if you're going to have them because you recognize how different they can be genetically, right? Mm-hmm. That that they just are different people, and uh, and otherwise you, you 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 there's a tendency to overemphasize your influence on them, right? <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That if you only have one, right? Like everything this kid is is due to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you have two or three. And they're all very different, and yet they all have the same parents, mm-hmm. right? You know, yeah. it's like you, 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 you're awakened from that dream that you're so important. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> our uh, our third Scarlet, she is this super sweet, and everyone says she looks just like you, and so I say, oh yeah, she looks just like me. She has my sweet personality, and of course, of course, they draw the line. They're like, okay, okay, bud, sorry, <laughs> you're not getting that attribute. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it, it is interesting. So. Friendships, businesses, marriages, those are all things that obviously we enter um, rosy at, it would seem for the most part. I guess there are some marriages or businesses that you start dreading, but by and large, people, I'm assuming, um, go into them kind of rosy eyed as you're mm-hmm. going through this um, and you're saying, okay, well, overconfidence, delusional, you know, it, you said that it, it could be good to not be rational. So you think about marriage or business. Um if there are signs that this is going poorly, the rational, logical thing might be to leave. Yes, right. Um, but I'm sus- I suspect that you're going to argue that there's times where that's not the case. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, the sports examples that we that we have pointed to mm-hmm. are are ones in which uh, if you continue to be overconfident, you know, then then you at least have a chance of winning in a situation where you're underwater. Um, but but uh, yeah, I think that's a difficult, I, I wouldn't put that as a useful delusion, actually. I mean, I think that people have a, a, a tendency not to pull out, you know, when they probably should in many, there's this sunk cost fallacy you may have heard of that, you know, I've put so much into this uh, to pull out now would be a loss. People are, are, are reluctant to sell stocks when they're low because you know I'm losing money when in fact they could just go even lower if they don't and so so there is a tendency to 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 stick in losing enterprises I think but um but you know there are circumstances the the different example that I I wanted to go to is there are circumstances in which being unrealistically pessimistic may actually be the best option uh, and this will tell us also something about po- uh, optimism as well. But but so think about your health, right? Mm-hmm. And what if there's an what if there's a pandemic coming, right? This is a situation where optimism probably would not be uh, overconfidence mm-hmm. would probably not be a good enterprise, you know, a good approach. You you will devalue preparation you won't do you know i'm going to be fine you won't do anything to prepare for it uh whereas if you're pessimistic and there is there is there are people who are who despite performing well always predict poor performance in themselves mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. uh 
uh, and it's sort of depressive pessimism, it's called. And so the, the, um, or defensive pessimism, but the, um, uh, so in that case, the person who's pessimistic will make all sorts of preparations, right? Uh, and will will be worried that they're going to get sick. They'll wear the mask. They'll do whatever they need to, to to prevent that from happening, which is probably good. However, in terms of the the outcome with the with health, but the the problem is is that uh, that it doesn't feel good in the moment, right? What feels good is optimism and, and overconfidence. That feels good, and so 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 although defensive pessimism may help you prepare for an oncoming thing uh it's not going to be pleasant while you're while you're doing it whereas overconfidence always feels good in the moment but it might not be the you know and sometimes it will be good in terms of uh helping you get through the day but but um but you have to factor that into it you know in other words you you were talking about should i quit a business that's mm-hmm. not doing well Right. Well, part of the part of the equation of your overconfidence is that it certainly feels better to believe that I'm going to succeed than to acknowledge the fact that I might not. And so so that can cloud one's thinking in a way that I think in that case you're talking about might not be good. Okay. so you mentioned you've had a few pushbacks or controversial things that come up from the book. Um, We talked about the personality part. is there been one that surprised you? People are like, hey, I'm not too sure about this. It's kind of caught you off guard. Uh, not too many. I mean, there's one that there's one that I mean, the the personality one, there are people who don't who don't buy that. That's that is a controversial issue. The 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 one that is the least likely for other people to endorse is the very last example in the book. And that is uh free will, right? And what I argue is that that we don't have it right that this is a this is a viewpoint is you know uh, that uh that uh, is determinism or uh, whatever and uh and so i argue and i provide some experimental evidence that supports that view and there are arguments uh, that support it but what i suggest is that we do feel there's no question that we feel like we're doing things when i move my hand like this Mm-hmm. It feels to me like I'm the one doing it, you know, and, and as we take actions and uh, and although I argue in the book and others have too, I'm not new. I'm not the first person to make this argument, but I argue that that feeling is actually an illusion. It's not it's not it doesn't really it's not really that we are doing it. It's it's a it's a, you know, a confluence of many forces on us. Uh, but but that feeling is still very valuable and it and it does allow us to to hold people responsible right in other words the fact that i feel that i've done a certain thing means that if you punish me for it i will feel guilty because i do associate it with myself and and also there are just simple things of being able to distinguish when my body moves did i do it or did somebody do it to me you know if you're driving down the highway and the wheel turns and you go off the highway, it's a very different thing if you felt like you did it yourself or if it went on its own. And being able to simply distinguish those two factors helps us survive. And uh, 
So, so I, I, that's sort of the biggest one. And, 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 and obviously, you know, most philosophers do not, uh, do not subscribe to that view. Many scientists do, but. Um, yeah, that's about but, You're not arguing it from a religious standpoint, I suspect. It's for, for some other perspective. I mean, I think it's, I actually think that the, I mean, there is a religious argument for free will, you know, it's, it's, it's a necessary aspect of, for, of but, but there's also determinism as well in, in religious debate. Right, exactly. I mean, how could God be omniscient and all knowing and, and, and still have us be, you know, free to choose whatever. So, so, but, uh, but the, uh, the, you know, I, I, I argue it from a scientific point of view and I think that the most everyday evidence for it is simply the feeling, right? Is that we do feel as though, and it, and so arguing with somebody that I'm not waving my hand right now, you're not doing that. It's just counterintuitive for many people, I think. And so, so that's that. And of course, in the case of philosophy, uh, you know, they there's a need for free will in order to hold people responsible and and punish them and so forth or or praise them right uh and so this sort of you know causes a problem with that but but what i argue is that the illusion is valuable that the that the illusion is we use it we've it's probably not an ac- accident that we evolved ha- having this feeling that we are doing the things we do because as a social species it has helped us a lot I'll be honest with you. I felt really good about you coming on the podcast until I realized that you didn't choose to. And so now it's like, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. You say, no, I can take no credit. I'm very happy to be here, but, uh, but I had nothing to do with it. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, well, okay, this is gonna be great. And it's like, oh no, no, no. You were, you were forced to come on. So the feeling has changed on this. (laughs) Well, you were forced to be here too. Oh, well, okay. That's fair. (laughs) That's fair. Well, the determinism is an interesting debate because, um, I mean, you, you get in all kinds of stuff. Obviously, there's, as you mentioned, there's philosophical and there's religious implications. Um, um, in, in thinking about um, crime and punishment, um, to your point about about how you would go through and do that, and there is a, you know, this wouldn't be, I would suspect, a deterministic argument, but you know, I, I've always I've said to people, and I don't remember I heard this from, you know, you always do what you want to do in the sense that you came on this podcast instead of going to the bar. Or you're going to do what you're going to do next instead of doing. And people are like, well, I don't want to go fold laundry. It's like, well, in the sense that you're saying you don't want to do it, then yes, but you could hmm. do something else outside of a deterministic argument. And they'll be like, oh, well, well, no, I can't. I've got no. Like, no, 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 no. You can quit your job today. Like nothing's stopping you. Um, and, and and they will they will argue almost a deterministic mindset. Like, no, I have to do these things. It's like, well, we're not talking about determinism. We're just talking about choices um and it's funny just talking to people how that's a that's a hard concept for people even if they disagree with the concept for them right. to grasp with the argument that's being made right no it is it is a, it's always been very difficult and uh and i i do my best to make my point in the book uh and and i think that if you read the book you you will recognize that it, it that it, you know that there is a there is an argument to be had there uh and the and if i'm right 
then then the delusion has been helpful to us, very helpful. And uh, uh, and so uh, so that's probably the most controversial one. And, and I've had I've given public talk. I gave one public talk in which I concentrated on that chapter particularly. And, uh, and, and despite doing my best to convince the audience, there were people who were unconvinced. So, yeah, you, you but, do what well, you they were. But but yes, exactly. they were. They had no choice. They had no choice. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We are going to link to the book, of course, in the show notes, the uses of delusion. Why it's always, why it's not always rational to be rational. Um, Anywhere else you want us to send people to or plug or promote while we have you? I have a, uh, there are two things. I have a website. uh, That's just my name, uh, stuartvise.com. And and also, I write for a magazine, and I, I am currently actually interim editor of the magazine uh, uh, for the for the moment. But I write for a magazine called Skeptical Inquirer. And so, if uh, if you're interested in in things irrational uh, and rational, it's called a, a magazine for science and reason, and uh, I recommend it. Okay, we will link to all of that in the show notes for people to check out. Stuart, thank you so much for your time today. Ryan, it was my pleasure. Had a lot of fun. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five-star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much. Ever wonder if the deep state murdered President Kennedy? If Hillary Clinton is kidnapping babies? If the COVID-19 virus is part of a plot to turn your country into an evil dictatorship? Or if Tom Cruise is a shape-shifting alien reptile? Hi, my name is Michel-Jacques Gagné. I'm a Canadian author, teacher, philosophical historian, and recovering conspiracist. I'm also the creator and host of the Paranoid Planet podcast, a monthly variety show that combines fun conversations, long-form interviews, thoughtful essays, film and book reviews, and a little bit of silliness on the subject of, well, you guessed it, conspiracy theories. So if you want to learn more about conspiracism, if you want to become a better critical thinker, or if you just enjoy listening to interesting conversations in an entertaining format, check out the Paranoid Planet podcast at www.paranoidplanet.ca. That's www.paranoidplanet.ca. Or anywhere you download your favorite podcasts. Until then, make sure you keep the blinds closed, avoid talking to strangers, and, just to be safe, avoid drinking the water out of the tap. You'll thank us for it later. But don't take my word for it. Ask this guy you think tap water is it's a gay bomb baby i don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin frogs gay do you understand that i'm serious crap i'm sick of being social engineered it's not funny